You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are joined by Boris Mann, who is the co-founder and CEO of Fission. Fission is a company that is looking to provide developers with a decentralized backend as a service platform to build and deploy distributed apps with end-to-end encryption and user control data. Boris, a very warm welcome to you on our show from both Nikhil and myself. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Boris. So, uh, could you start off by telling us a little bit about your background? Uh, I mean, you're one of the really experienced guests on our show. Uh, in your uh, early days, you were very deeply involved with Drupal. Uh, in fact, you helped found the Drupal Association. Uh, and later on, when uh, Ethereum came along, you helped grow the Ethereum community as well in different parts of the globe. So, uh, could you tell us about your journey from when you started uh, up to the point of co-founding and uh, leading Fission today? Right, my history. Uh, well, um, I guess I'm kind of an old man of the internet. I was one of the first thousand bloggers in the world is one of the things I say. I don't actually know what that number is. Um, and uh, so really got involved early in, in uh, looking at, at helping put content online for uh, by everyone. Uh, and obviously that was techies doing things like, you know, running a web server under our desks over, you know, if we were lucky, a DSL line or something like that. Um, but that led me straight into lots of the early stuff that was happening in, in Web2, notably among them uh, open source. So uh, I was uh, running the Drupal uh, open source CMS, uh, and I wanted to make some changes. I had some suggestions, so I got involved with the mailing list. Um, and from there, that led to you know a multi-year journey of uh, working with that community and just being amazed about what it means to be work with people worldwide, uh, organize a lot of the events, you know, grow from um, 40 people in a basement at the first DevCon, uh, uh, DrupalCon, sorry, um, uh, to uh, thousands of developers just uh, uh, years later. Um, so from that, that really led me to, you know, open source as a radical act. We were fighting Microsoft at the time. Um, OAuth was being invented. Social networks were being invented. All this stuff was happening very quickly. Reminds me actually of today, uh, some of the things that are happening with uh, with Web3, which is really, you know, why I'm involved. Um, we built these kind of LAMP stack systems, uh, which ultimately are centralized, slightly too complicated, slightly too insecure. And if the developer hosting your stuff goes away, you're you're done. And so uh, I'm kind of back in, uh, in Web3 saying, hey, we should have data that's more encrypted and more user-centric, and this stuff should just be easier for developers to build rather than have to str- struggle with things. So when I saw uh, uh, Ethereum arrive, um, uh, I got involved and uh, uh, my uh, friend Bob Summerwell, who's here in Vancouver, uh, he was early with the Ethereum Foundation, uh, told me about it and I was very excited. So I went to Coinbase and uh, bought $25 worth of Ethereum um, and used it to deploy a smart contract with uh, beer credits in it. It was one of the, the, the base examples of it around the time. Uh, and from there, I was kind of uh, hooked at, at, at really seeing what could be sort of a backend as a service that was all open source, that people around the world could work on together, and this capability to, to write, you know, custom functions on top. 
um, which is kind of the kind of thing of my open source principles um, and kind of working together I'd always wanted. So um, I ended up uh, uh, working on core Ethereum work, uh, one of the first wallet unconferences, really focusing on making this stuff work on mobile as well. Um, was in Berlin and, and in, helped organize the second Ethereum Magicians along with the uh, discourse forum where a lot of the discussion happens around governance. Uh, Brooke, my co-founder and CTO, um, joined me. Uh, she was in Berlin at the time and we said, hey, we really want to work on this stuff full time. And uh, we ended up getting a grant from the first Tachyon Accelerator program to uh, implement what uh, was called fission code. So kind of like HTTP status codes. Uh, but for smart contracts, so smart contracts could work more like agents uh, and talk to each other and route based on uh, on return codes um, that they didn't even necessarily know what what smart contracts were were there ahead of time. Uh, from there, we we did a lot of other core work. Brooke became a core um, contributor to a number of EAPs and and working on improving uh, uh, Ethereum virtual machines. Uh, VMs is one of her expertises, and and she's been. Uh, now uh, working with the uh, uh, Filecoin uh, uh, VM team and FEVM efforts as well in an advisory capacity. Um, and what we really saw was the challenge was that that while people were experimenting with these smart contracts and so on, they were still struggling with the things that Brooke and I had been dealing with for 20 years, which is apps are too complicated. Uh, as a front-end developer, you have to become a full-stack developer. And doing things like passwordless logins and getting encryption right is really hard. And so we, we set out to Fission to say, what if we could build an entire edge computing stack with identity, data, and compute, with portable data with IPFS, uh, so that full-stack developers can build entire rich apps which respect user privacy and make all these things portable without having to set up yet another centralized server. Uh, and that's really where the idea of uh, uh, Fission was born and, and uh, uh, how we got started. Makes sense. I mean, on your website, I, I did uh, see one line which uh, says that, you know, you as a company, you want to walk the walk and uh, you describe Fission to be a fully distributed company. I mean, I think it's the perfect uh, point for you to just go a little bit deeper into the company, like how, how big you are as a team. And uh, maybe if you could just touch a little bit on the funding aspect as well. Yeah, so um, Fission um is a fully distributed company we are oh geez i'm going to get this number wrong uh either 23 or 24 people uh i am in vancouver uh bc canada um as is broken zelenka my co-founder and cto uh it is a canadian headquartered company um but we have people all over the world so a number of places in the u.s uh oregon um San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Arkansas, North and South Carolina, um, uh, Toronto, uh, uh, Japan, uh, Belgium, Germany, Brazil, and Lagos, Nigeria. I'm probably missing a couple of U.S. states in there somewhere. Um, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, one of those P names. Uh, I haven't memorized this recently. Um, so I've been building distributed companies and distributed communities for a very long time. It's sort of non-controversial today, uh, um, or rather the pandemic has forced everyone to realize that um, working in this distributed way is definitely possible. Uh, Fission itself is uh, uh, very much modeled on on open source models. Um, the code that we release is, is openly licensed. Uh, we write a lot of specifications. 
um, Brooke and I, uh, decided that, um, Web3 native funding was not the right path. Uh, I joke and call our model the, the mullet, uh, equity in the front, uh, tokens in the back, meaning, <laughs> uh, that, uh, today we, uh, we have a traditional, uh, company in Canada. Uh, we raised a little bit of, um, uh, early funding supporting Brooke and I on basically just an idea, uh, in 2019. Um, we then, uh, raised a, a pre-seed round, uh, last year, um, that closed in, uh, September, October. Um, and that actually lined up with timing of a bunch more people getting really excited about what we're doing, connecting into protocol labs and protocol labs led our seed round, uh, this year, earlier this year. Um, and, um, it sort of coincided with us heading in a direction of becoming protocol engineers from where we started. Great. So, uh, now before we move on to taking a deep dive into discussing the various tools that you're building at Vision, uh, I mean, today we want to discuss about decentralized identifiers or uh, DIDs in short, uh, and UCANs and your uh, web native SDK. Uh, before we go into these topics, uh, for our audience, could you very briefly talk a little bit about IPFS, um, like what it is and uh, how content addressing on IPFS works compared to centralized databases? Absolutely. Uh, IPFS is the interplanetary file system. Uh, and one of the, th- the its core things that it implements is content addressing. So with content, with uh, location-based addressing like we have today, we might have example.com or bmanconsulting.com. So that's a dom- domain name that points at an IP address that in turn has resources of an app or a file system that gets served up. Uh, you can't really help me uh, host example.com because that's authoritative and pointing at, well, maybe some load balancers and some other things, but it's a location. Now, on the other hand, content addressing cares about that the content is uh, the same. And it means that many people can help share it across the network. So if I upload a photo called boris.jpg, uh, that content address is calculated from the actual content of the file uh, into uh, a unique hash, a content ID or SID as it's known in the IPFS world. And with that SID, with that content address, it's unique and verifiable. If you say, uh, download that boris.jpg, um, and add a red nose to it, a red clown nose and upload it again, it will have a different content address because the content has changed. Right. Now, the interesting part is that this content, this hash is actually, um, a graph of blocks underneath for people who are familiar with BitTorrent. Uh, or vaguely familiar with it, it uh, uh, chunks of files are built into like smaller blocks. And IPFS and content addressing works the same way. Uh, so if that boris.jpg was like a really big, high quality uh, 80 meg file, uh, and then you, you know, you change some of the bits in it, um, it would still, in fact, um, be, let's say, um, 98% the same. And so if we were sharing back and forth between those things, we only have to transmit the blocks that are 2% changed. It also means you can do really interesting things with caching. So if you have something locally on device, even offline, and multiple people are hosting uh, content, uh, then 
as people ask for that content address, it can be fetched from wherever it is locally. It doesn't have to go to a central server pointed at by a domain name, like example.com. It can actually just broadcast that content address um, and uh, fetch it from, uh, from a network. Um, and that's a pretty amazing capability. On this particular point uh, regarding the red nose, you mentioned that, okay, by adding, you changed, it changed that the few bytes. Uh, the, wouldn't the address of the, the content address itself or the CID itself change? And in which case, so wouldn't it be a different version of the file then that, that you would need to distribute first, the new CID? Well, that's what I'm saying. It, it has the benefits of both. So if, ah. uh, if I already have the old file with a unique SID, um, and you're sending me a new one. Well, I already have 98% of the blocks. So the only ah, okay. thing that needs to be d- distributed is the, is the difference. This is where right. IPFS is also a little bit like Git. You only have the differences. Uh, but, uh, in the first place, you would have to distribute the CID also, right? You'd have to tell the person that, Hey, okay, uh, the CID of this file has changed. Uh, this is the new CID. And when he actually uh, pulls the file using the new CID, then only two blocks would be uh, pulled in yeah, and, the whole thing. And, and and again, you're thinking about it as a single file, but it is in fact not the Multiple same files. file. Uh, right. they, are, they are SIDs. Um, so you get this kind of like versioning automatically. Uh, you know, if we went, if we went back and forth and had uh, eight different versions, they could all be named boris.jpg, but they would each have a unique SID. So, how how does one then distribute Boris Raj? So is Boris JPEG still in IPFS distributed as Boris JPEG and not a hash value? So if you think about it, even Boris JPEG is in fact a location address. Uh, so this takes some getting used to, of course, because we're not used to just thinking in hashes. But with IPFS. Uh, content is this self-verifying data that's represented by a hash. There are ways of basically um, representing things as that label that we know, uh, so boris.jpg, but then underneath you can look at it, uh, and of course you're not passing around boris.jpg because that doesn't have any meaning. Uh, you're passing around the SID that represents that, including the label that titles it boris.jpg. Because we've lived with location-based addressing for ever, uh, this takes a bit of getting used to. But once you start thinking about it in content addressing, you're, you you realize that this portability and self-verification has like huge impact. So if I send you a file uh, and I send it to you with the SID, you know you know I mean exactly that file and not boris.jpg edit three from last Tuesday. I'm giving you an actual version that says, no, no, it's exactly this content address. This has implications for all sorts of things like video, um, verifiability of information on the internet, knowing when something has changed. Because if, if you're hosting something on uh, location-based addressing, if you go to example.com slash boris.jpg, it's not even guaranteed to be a picture. It could be malware. Uh, it could be a PHP script. It could be all sorts of things. Um, and so that just takes some getting used to, but ultimately what you're doing is you're switching from passing around locations to really understanding that passing around, um, content addresses and all of the blocks that make up a piece of verifiable data. Cool. Yeah. Uh, understood. So I, th- I think that kind of covers 
most of the uh, kind of gives an overview of what IPFS is and and the primary difference between IPFS and a regular file system. But IPFS obviously is the lowest layer. And to go go back to your mission, if you uh, one of the important pieces in uh, in in this puzzle essentially is uh, identity, right? And uh, uh, I remember when I was looking at uh, how uh, Fission uh, is proposing to address that particular problem, the concept of a decentralized identifier comes up, and uh, you basically talk about DIDs, and then uh, in conjunction with DIDs, you also talk about uh, UCANs. So could you kind of go a little bit into what is a DID and, uh, you know, how, how does that actually differ from your standard uh, idea of what an ID identity is in traditional Web 2.0? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of our mission was making sure that uh, everything from identity to data could be portable and, and owned by the user. Uh, decentralized identifiers or DIDs is actually a W3C uh, spec as of this July. Um, so we'll make sure that goes in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, and it is a, they're unique identifiers. Uh, they can be verified. They're decentralized. Um, it's not necessarily even a person. It could be a person, an organization, a piece of software, a data model, um, uh, other things, uh, like this. Um, but we thought that, uh, you know, if there are existing standards in a space, we like to use them as much as possible. Um, and, uh, and so DIDs are one of those pieces that we uh, ended up choosing. The reason that we were looking at identity, um, aside from the portability aspect, so from a blockchain space, you, you think of uh, blockchains themselves having the identifiers. Um, and in fact, you can represent, say, an Ethereum address uh, as a DID. There's, there's a couple of different flavors, DID, uh, PKH, uh, so public key. Uh, is one way that uh, those things get uh, represented. Um, and we did this because we saw one of the issues with IPFS was that it didn't store uh, private data. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of use cases that are really important for private data. Um, and uh, so we built an encrypted file system uh, called the Web Native File System. And if you do encryption, you need identity. Um, and you also need identity for, you know, our mission before of having an entire identity data and compute stack for front-end developers. So you have to identify the person who's, who's coming in again. The other constraints that we put our, on ourselves was we've seen, you know, an explosion of um, public-private key cryptography being used with uh, the classic blockchain browser extension, which gets us to about 50 million users, but doesn't work on mobile. Uh, and in general, um, browser extensions are a very early adopter type of thing. We don't get to billions of users with browser extensions. So when we set out to design this, we said, you know what? We want something that's portable. Uh, we want something that works in browser on the web, uh, including on mobile web without a browser extension. So that, so that was our constraints in, in designing the system. Um, we uh, are, are, you can support, an, you can bring your own DAD of any kind. What we built on top of uh, initially was something called the Web Crypto API that's built into in every browser, including mobile browsers. Um, and it puts a non-exportable private key into the browser, not in the um, front part where it can be attacked by JavaScript and otherwise snooped, 
but in fact into the, the Chrome of the browser. Uh, um, and uh, that means this is a very um, secure way of, of uh, rooting identity into the system. Um, great, awesome. We've got uh, private keys represented by DADs that, that represent a user or rather every single device that you're, that you're logged into. Um, right. right? And, and that's a really, really great starting point. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the immediate question then would be, okay, so what happens if I change my phone or if I move to a, from my phone to my iPad? If if what you're saying is that the private key is embedded into the browser itself uh, deeply, how is a user expected to carry his identify identity over to the other device that he might want to move to? Yeah, and I think that's the first thing to understand is that DIDs by themselves aren't identity. They're an identifier. And this is sort of like deep identity wonk kind of stuff, but it's very important. Of course, the blockchain space has unfortunately settled on this thing of like, I've won in exactly one address and every single transaction is completely public and can be correlated, which is not great. And that's something that we have to make improvements on in, in different ways. Yeah. Um, so this is also where UCAN comes in. So uh, needing a decentralized auth protocol to carry around uh, permissions and capabilities um, between different systems without needing to include a central server. So what UCAN does is it takes a DID um, and uh, signs a small token and then passes that on to other systems, whether it's a server, a service, or in fact, um, another DID that says, you now have um, the capabilities of acting as me. So if you've ever used um, uh, Apple's iCloud on iOS uh, mm -hmm. or some Google facilities, um, you sign into other devices. And that's also cryptographically secure with centralized iCloud services. And sometimes you're prompted to verify between devices, is this really you? And UCAN works the same way. If you try it with our web native app template, you can try it for yourself, where if you start on desktop and then scan a QR code and link that identity to your phone, um, what you're actually doing underneath is saying that this key on your phone and this uh, key on your desktop browser uh, have just have assigned a token that assign the same uh, uh, capabilities to each other. So either one can now act as each other. And so all of a sudden, we've got um, um, uh, two separate devices that have the same capabilities uh, that they have independently because they can show that they have assigned proof that they've got uh, capabilities from the other system. Okay. So as I understand it, so you're using the DID concept, uh, uh, using the web, web crypto concept to set up private keys. And then basically use that first private key to delegate a UCAN token uh, with all the capabilities that have been accrued into that. So, so again, I'm I'm kind of like trying to understand a little bit out here. So, uh, when you said auth, right? Uh, one of the things when I think about auth is that there are two parts to it. One is authentication, which is Proving that you are you, right? And proving that, uh, or proving that I have control over a key or I have control in, in public key, private key parlance that, uh, I own a particular private key. And then there is authorization, which basically is, okay, by virtue of the fact that you've proved yourself the owner of a token or a public key, private key pair, 
what are the capabilities that you get, right? So uh, when you said you can is actually having the auth. Uh, it, it's, it stands for user controlled authorization networks. Um, and basically we've taken JWT. Um, there's lots more reading of this on the UCAN community site. Um, and it, it's a way of doing authorization where users are fully in control. So in classic auth systems, whether it's JWT or OAuth or whatever, you've got a central server that mediates every single one of those transactions. And in this case, we have a user-controlled token uh, embedded in JWT um, that has signed proofs that indicate what they're authorized to do. So this is a capabilities model, uh, which is right. different from a traditional ACL model. Yes, and uh, one of the... Uh, the reasons why I think uh, OAuth is OAuth and you have this concept of an identity provider in OAuth uh, is that, okay, there was always this concern that, okay, the token could be stolen, right? So I, I might, uh, I mean, I still have the private key and I kind of uh, have delegated uh, these, I have these capabilities that I've signed onto that token. It could be a session token or whatever kind of token. If somebody... Uh, intercepts that token and takes it away from me then for, for for all essential purposes he can pretend to be me because that token uh has J the jwt has that particular set of capabilities defined within it now in the centralized version uh you get around this or you kind of prevent this by basically having the server require that this token be authenticated again right or for periodically it, it expires or you you basically have the have some kind of verification by the server saying that hey is this token still valid how does that actually work in a you can thing so so funny story when we were first uh working on the early uh, versions of the sdk um we found that we were way too aggressive in uh the time to live of of when the you can tokens were valid uh, and uh, clock drift on a couple of systems was causing issues for uh, for people. Um, yeah. So that's part of the spec that you can you can build with. So first of all, um, they're meant to be quite short lived, um, and you pass them along, um, uh, sort of, and create them as needed because you have the private key and you can sign new you cans uh, whenever you need. Um, there is a whole section on revocation in the you can spec. Um, so when we say like, oh yeah, we have this you can thing, um, it's not a W3C or IETF spec yet. Um, um, it's something that we've, uh, um, uh, initially incubated within Fission. And then basically it has graduated. It has a number of different people implementing it and working on it and co-authors on various parts of the spec. Um, so there's a whole, um, community, community driven spec process. Um, that covers a lot of these things. Um, so uh, revocation is definitely something that's part of this as well. Um, and uh, these are essentially issued as well as another part of the chain um, um, that you as the owner of those things can uh, revoke it to, to other systems. Okay. And just as a quick follow-up to this, there's also the other aspect of, uh, uh, of this, right? Which is essentially... Uh, like you mentioned, uh, I can generate tokens in the revocation. You can adjust revocation time so that, okay, uh, tokens are short-lived. And that, that makes sense. That That's great. 
So does that mean that the capabilities that this particular token has or the authorizations that this particular token has is centrally managed? Uh, so the first time when I when basically I get a token and I say, okay, I'm going to create this UCAN token, where do I get the authorizations that I'm allowed to put onto this token? Where Where does that actually live? Uh, so this is very much comes down to your uh, your your application, um, and uh, so there you can define um, basically a capability that's an association of an ability to a resource. Um, and so uh, the simple example of something like this is uh, again I mentioned that we we developed a file system with this. So. Right. Uh, and the first thing um, in uh, using a web native SDK when you're sharing between devices, um, the same app on both sides, you have the capability of, say, read and write to an app folder and the app itself. So the uh, user and anyone that they, they share it with uh, have read-write on their whole file system. So think of this in your mind a little bit like iCloud. So if you open your phone and you open a new app, it asks for permission to access your photos. And in fact, uh, Apple has increased this over time and it can choose different capabilities. Uh, do you want access to your entire photo library? Only selected ones or only selected folders or types of things. So those are an example of capabilities. Um, and that's exactly how UCAN works. Ah, uh, okay. So it is this concept of capabilities. And that that's kind of uh, brought in into the app, but uh, they're also so. I'm again putting on my hat of a you know business developer who just wants to use this right uh, for my business. Um, I need to be able to distinguish between uh, or give different. So suppose I have like a pricing model, right? I can basically say, okay, free tier, you get a read access to certain folders or certain media. Uh, you pay for uh, access to, you know, I don't know, uh, editing certain videos for a certain amount of time or whatever, right? So if the, if that's the case, basically, when I'm distributing this app or this particular app, let's call it a, a I don't know, a podcast editing app, right? So uh, in podcast, basically, uh, they'll give you freely available. Uh, uh, you can download and and listen to video uh, podcast, but in order to edit, you need to uh, or upload, you need to uh, pay for it. Say so. This is a very simple example. Uh, but if I wanted to take this, create such an app and distribute it using Fission or the the Web three concept, right? Uh, I need to be able to say, okay, uh, Krishna paid for it, so he can upload things. But Nikhil didn't pay for it, so he can only listen to things. So where does that actually? live if it is all going to be decentralized? So you still have service providers, businesses, and various other things like that. It means that they are in tier in a number of different ways. So for example, with Web Native, we uh, uh, you know vertically integrate it and we take care of persistence and, and accounts and things like that uh, on, a, on a per user basis. Um, okay. Web3 storage, uh, which is uh, one of the folks who are building on top of UCAN, um, right. And some of the, the team that work for that are are um, part of the spec authors as well. Um, what you can't solve for them is when you're building front-end only apps, 
you can't put secrets in the front end, which is a challenge. How do you do that? How can uh, how can you still have access to resources in different ways, which forces us back into uh, servers in in different ways? Where do you where do you keep state? Um, yes. So in the model that they're um, and I they'll likely going to be rolling out their UCAN based APIs. I think they're in beta now, but they'll they'll probably more formally come out in Q1 of of next year. So what they looked at it is is a developer uh, creates an account and then has a UCAN representing the root of that developer account. What the developer account does is it delegates access to each of the users. Ah, okay. As a sub area, underneath, behind the covers, this is not that dissimilar uh, with AWS IAM Identity and Access Management in the middle. Uh, right. You can, in fact, create a separate Amazon sub account um, for each uh, hosted customer that you might work with, or something like that. So from a user perspective, they can't tell that it's any different. It might look like a centralized service uh, to, to them. What it, but it, was, it does mean that they can upgrade to taking ownership and paying for, in this case, persistence, storage, and gateway services of both IPFS and Filecoin through Web3 storage uh, in that system. Um, or um, one of the things that we're exploring in, in partnering more with Web3 storage uh, Fission might choose to have sort of a wholesale UCAN uh, and then delegate to other developers or users underneath that. Uh, and uh, that would all be honored. And we might just pay a single wholesale price to uh, Web3 Storage. Um, this is all TBD in the sense that we're just coming up on multiple people using these systems. Um, but it very much solves problems of and is exactly how people build some of these things today with lex less flexibility. You can't hand your customer your Amazon secrets. So, in fact, what you need to do is come some way of delegating that. Uh, and that's one of the things we can do directly in the front end and user-centric. So based on this, we kind of talked about, you know, this capability model and, and how, how UCANs can be used for that, how, how this Web3 storage basically can help handle that particular aspect of it. To kind of paraphrase my your what you said and my understanding of it, what I understand from that essentially is that there is a concept of a dual token, right? So you have the developer who or the creator of the application still having some kind of control and delegating that uh, access. It's, it's not a dual. It's not a dual token. It is a proof chain. Proof chain. So okay. the the developer has um, a signed. You can that gives them certain capabilities from uh, something like Web3 Storage. Yes. And then they sub-delegate that further to down. devices, users, endpoints, anything else you, that you like. So this kind of goes down also to, okay, this particular developer, right? So again, another traditional uh, viewpoint. One of the challenges that the traditional Web 2.0 market always had was, well, okay, we had malicious actors basically hijacking applications, right? So, how, oh, and one of the things that the app stores and iOS famously keeps claiming is that, you know, we protect you from that because we verify and uh, we sign all the all the code so that only verified developers that we and, and code that we have vetted is available to you, right? But in a decentralized model, obviously, that's, not there now. Thinking back, there has been uh, there's a 
an existing thing that happens in the open source community, which is known as uh, PGP, right? Which is the pretty good privacy signing of emails. And one of the things about that was that, okay, if you go back the PGP chain and you say, okay, how do I trust that this particular email is coming from another person? The way that that's kind of built is that they say, okay, there's a web of trust where you basically say, I physically go and go to these places uh, or go to these conferences or whatever, and we exchange public keys. And uh, we kind of create this from outside the system, create a web of trust that then allows us to then do uh, encrypted exchanges with confidence that the people, uh, that the parties that uh, are on both ends are who they say they are. Is this something that we would have to eventually think about for UCANs or uh, how, how does that one, one kind of like tie in the DID concept Especially from the developer side, right? How 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 as a as an end user can so, I trust? So I think we're going developer? down a rabbit hole. I think we're I think we're heading down a rabbit hole here, where um, we're not reinventing public key cryptography. Okay, that exists, and you can have key management in a number of different ways. Uh, I'm also excited about uh, the web auth and passkey stuff that's coming. Right, that's going to put um, you know keys in like 500 million end user devices in like six months. Um, uh, we've got 50 million blockchain accounts where uh, key management is solved out of band and bring in a, a browser extension or wallet connect or something like that. Um, there's a lot of different layers to what you're asking. Uh, let's start on like, how do I trust a thing? Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that I really love IPFS for and content addressing. It's self-verifying. So um, there is open source, um, uh, oftentimes software releases get signed and then you you're supposed to um, uh, compare the hashes with what you've downloaded to make sure it's the, the, the right one, because you can't trust if the place that you downloaded it from gave you the same bits. True. So that's built into IPFS. Ah, uh, okay. Right? Because of the content data. So if you, because of the content. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if you publish a binary or a website or anything else like that, it will have a content address. Of course, you still have the problem of like, you know, where do you get that content address from? Um, that you, 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 you know, you trust the source of it at the end of the day. Um, but set up correctly, you can trust that when you visit a content address, that it has not been, um, uh, changed, uh, or modified, uh, from the source that you're getting it from. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting piece. And then the rest of it, I mean, you're describing public key cryptography. Yes. Uh, um, that's and, probably because and, that's what I know. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, and it, and 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 that's a very large space, and cryptography is complicated. I'm not a cryptographer, um, so you know, we're we're trusting that those pieces, like a non-exportable key in Web Crypto API, works. Uh, we're trusting that generating um, an elliptic curve uh, on your uh, for developers at your CLI works. Um, and uh, uh, so if you if you match up that proper cryptography, then you, you've got, you know, sign chains. The meta level of, yes, but which identities should you trust? That's an ongoing thing that we're doing a bunch more of stuff with, right? I think that there's evolving work. Um, I'm very interested in the matrix protocol, uh, which is a uh, end-to-end um, chat and messaging system. Yeah. And they're talking about decentralized reputation where um, my reputation in this interview might be a certain thing. You're like, okay, you know, he's fine. He's a five out of 10. 
And then other people who trust or don't trust your blockchain dialogues might then reflect that, uh, that reputation. So I think that's a real meta layer. And those are some of the things that we can start, um, uh, handling when we've got different concepts of portable, portable identifiers, where before at best we had to key on, let's say email or domain names. Uh, we've got a, we've got a couple of other, uh, options now when you're using keys to represent devices and people and services. Great. I think this was this was a really nice discussion on uh, uh, identifiers, uh, and I think now we've got a, a reasonable idea about IPFS and a reasonable idea of how the identif- identifiers things work. Let's let's kind of like look at how this kind of gets put together, and uh, you you also referred to the web native file system that you you had invented. Yes. Uh, so can we go into a little bit into that and how that kind of how how we kind of put it all together into an SDK? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started our mission um, with Vision, you know, we're set on putting this edge computing stack together on top of IPFS. Um, and what we actually quickly found is that we had to uh, pivot to becoming protocol engineers. That IPFS itself um, uh, needed improvements at a number of different layers. Both things like, oh, hey, there's no encrypted file system, so let's create that, um, and bringing in these other concepts. Um, so we've spent a lot of time doing like base level protocol work. Uh, you can, uh, WinFS is our file system, um, and, uh, you know, it's starting to get good adoption in a number of other different places. Uh, we're also working on an edge database, um, codename Dialog, and, um, IPVM recently launched, which is to add compute in the form of WebAssembly. Right. Um, so those are things moving along nicely. Um, the main product that we have right now for uh, front-end developers as an end product is the WebNative SDK. Okay. So if you go to um, webnative-template.fission.app, that's the uh, that's the direct link to the uh, template. Uh, we've also got a brand new, I don't think we've even announced it yet, uh, webnative.dev um, uh, homepage for that. That's very focused in uh, front end developers not having to worry about all of the protocol level stuff, but just using an SDK uh, that they can build front end apps with. Um, so, 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 is this in JavaScript or uh, is, what? What is the language out here? Uh, it is uh, uh, all in JavaScript. Okay. So you can use it with Svelte or React or anything else that you like. Um, we are in the midst of um, moving a lot of our core libraries to WebAssembly. But as far as the front-end developer experience is concerned, um, they're composing a number of tools with NPM uh, or their choice of package manager, and then using that as a building block where they have identity, um, an encrypted data system for users built in, and all of a sudden they've got uh, a lot of those capabilities uh, knowing that they can deliver end-to-end encryption and encryption at rest to their users, which is traditionally very hard to do. Um, in classic architectures. Uh, and we built all that in so they can just build an app on top. Right. So, so this sounds very exciting. So, uh, you had mentioned that, uh, you've created, uh, web, uh, the compute module, right? And, and that would be in WebAssembly. Why WebAssembly? Can you just walk us through why, why you picked, uh, that particular, uh, method? Yeah. So absolutely. So, so two pieces of that. The reason that we're, um, converting our library code around UCANs and around um, WinFS to WebAssembly 
is um, we're writing it in Rust, where uh, it's a very good companion for targeting it in WebAssembly, so it'll work in browsers. Um, and then Rust can be compiled natively uh, for desktop and mobile, um, uh, or the WASM binaries can be included in a number of different ways. So it is our intent to make this work in the web, but like I said before about the importance of mobile, it also needs to work on mobile. It should work over time in embedded devices and all sorts of things like that. So um, that's the sort of backend library case. Uh, the front end case really is for what's just emerging. If you look at um, uh, very front end developer centric systems like uh, Netlify or Vercel, uh, Cloudflare, uh, Workers, these are kind of some of the things that we have like with with static sites or um, edge apps that we have today. They also have various ways of doing identity data and compute. Today, that compute layer is mostly only proprietary cloud providers. Right. You're writing Lambda functions. And I think this represents a real threat for open source and for generally. Uh, so the three major cloud providers that are far ahead in serverless are all American. I think the LAMP stack architecture, uh, which is still based around containers, is going to come up against the scale to zero per execution uh, model of, of, of serverless. And uh, serverless has some baggage as a name and really struggle because we, we have to re-architect some of these things and you need to look at things a little differently. So for us, for WebAssembly, we see a rich application like Figma recently got bought by Adobe for $20 billion. Right. And a lot of what Figma pulled off was through the use of WebAssembly. So WebAssembly is the uh, fourth standard in browsers right now uh, behind HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Um, we think there's going to be a huge increase in WebAssembly generally for a number of different reasons. But the main one is, is that you don't bet against the widest distribution platform in the world, which is browsers. So we see uh, front-end developers being able to both compose existing WebAssembly functions and write new ones of their own that instead of executing on centralized servers, uh, it can execute in a number of different places. It can execute directly in the front-end. So just like JavaScript for a React front-end executes on a client, you can have more complex, tuned, or secure compute run in WebAssembly. Okay. And our thinking with IPVM is that, of course, you can mix and match. You might offload batch computation to run in a Cloudflare worker or, in fact, work on other devices in your network. Okay. And so so what, what you're saying basically is that the uh, web-native SDK that you're kind of building uh, eventually would be something where you can say, okay, here's this abstract concept of compute. I just consume it and... Uh, I don't worry whether it is, if it is actually being executed in the browser itself or it gets uh, sent to Cloudflare or somewhere else. And so basically I can say if it's a, a heavy compute like a AI training or something or a, some kind of model that needs to run, that, that can happen in the back end. But as far as the front end developer is concerned, it's all just serverless. I mean, it's not serverless per se. It's kind of like it's all just a, a function call that they do uh, to the same kind of SDK uh, library thing. 
It, yeah. So, and that, and that's, you know, let me flag that. That's very much future. Okay. But that's exactly how Apple devices work today. Their focus has been on doing things like having ML optimized chips directly in your iPhone or laptop and having a lot of that computing happen, happen yeah. at the edge. Right. Uh, and, uh, honestly, if Apple was uh, open source, I wouldn't have to build what I'm building with Fission. But we think that those same components need to be available for everyone rather than just sending all of your data to Google to have them do it centrally. And I think that's the really the dichotomy we're looking at today in a lot of different modes is we've got really powerful edge devices. Users have a number of devices in their home. They should make use of them in different ways. Yes. And we can mix and match. That doesn't mean that you're not going to use an Amazon or a Cloudflare worker. But if we can come up with some open portable standards of these things, then we can mix and match where these function calls run um, in in a much more portable way that uh, uh, has the ability to also, uh, you know, be encrypted and more private to users. So just a kind of a small comment over there. It's a generally notice is one of the challenges with uh, thinking around the lines of this kind of thing where you basically say, okay, uh, I have this magic box uh, in, in which I can call a function and uh, I don't care if it is on this machine or if it's on another machine, uh, it'll get executed and I get back. That kind of is an idealized concept because there's this real thing called network latency, right? And so that's a real problem that I don't think this uh, these solutions actually address. But... Uh, so, so they do in interesting ways. So... If you combine this with content addressing and, and verifiability, it means that you can... So over time, our stuff also aims to be local first in a number of different ways, whether that's a mobile app, right? You're not constantly asking permission of a central server of, did I do this right? You're saying, this is the content address that went in. I did some computation. This is provably the computation locally, right? So you can't lie about the results in different ways. There's all sorts of trust issues all the way around. There's definitely network latency. But content addressing gives us new choices to be able to cache at very different layers. So you can, uh, instead of constantly pushing uh, data uh, to compute, which is how we do it today, um, you can bring compute over data because all of a sudden it's location independent in much more interesting ways. So there will be situations where um, uh, latency is at play, but there's also a situation where the edge is at play, where the latency is zero because you have all of the information that you need verifiably through content addressing. You've cached it. Ah, okay. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, definitely. I think one uh, that is, it seems quite exciting because if we can solve that particular challenge, I'm sure there's a whole new world out there. And, and, and this is, again, I guess I'm still in the uh, web two mode of thinking so uh, i'm still in the in the process of getting my mind wrapped around the whole thing just to move on a little bit uh, boris can you kind of quickly just have a chat about you know you mentioned that you have a new da- database uh, edge database coming around and uh, maybe a-, a couple of words on that and then uh, maybe we could conclude with something about what's going to happen next for you what what your roadmap is like Sure, absolutely. So um, identity data, compute, touched on compute a little bit. Um, data, uh, in many ways, identity and data uh, should be a commodity. 
uh, in, in many different ways. Um, WinFS with encrypted at rest is, is interesting. Um, and probably some of that is not just a bare commodity of, of making that very portable and user owned. Um, and you can kind of build anything out of what, once you have data, you can build everything else on top of it. Amazon, in fact, of their web services started with Amazon S3 and, and went from there. Um, and people can, you know, use a JSON file or a flat file database or, you know, stick an SQLite file into WinFS uh, and get database functionality there in, in different ways. Um, but when it comes to building, you know, rich Figma-like applications, what you need is like multiplayer, uh, collaboration, read-write, uh, supporting offline use cases, uh, things like uh, light clients for uh, blockchain use cases. Um, and so for that, um, we've been working on Dialogue, which is on a planetary scale edge database. So we take advantage of content addressing uh, and we have different streams of data that different people have access to. Um, and again, this underlies the exact same model that things like Apple already ships in their app kits in different ways. Uh, they take care of syncing, they take care of iCloud, they take care of permissioning. And we really see giving the same set of tools to developers so that can, the, the really valuable part, the sticky part, ends up being uh, in the database. That's where the custom models are and everything else like that and where you want multiplayer support uh, that's a little more sophisticated than just conflict resolution of, you know, uh, file name one and file name two uh, underscore conflict. Um, so that's where dialogue fits in. Um, and we think that that and compute are the very valuable and sticky pieces that people can build everything from mobile apps to ones that just run in the web and PWAs um, uh, that should pretty much work everywhere. And then we have um, a rich stack uh, that uh, developers can build a lot of things with. That, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I think uh, we've got a pretty good overview of what you're, what you guys are doing, uh, and I want to thank you for the uh, deep discussion on uh, you know the identifiers and uh, and the whole debate about uh, identity and uh, APIs. So uh, I want to thank you uh, for coming and joining us in this episode, Boris. I had a great time talking to you. Awesome! Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I uh, I always enjoy spreading the word of what's coming down the pipe. And uh, I really look for more people to uh, dive in and check these things out. You know, we think edge computing is sort of a superset of blockchain. So all of this stuff uh, doesn't need a blockchain, uh, but we work with things like Filecoin and Ethereum. And so if you want to keep your app more decentralized, uh, check out Fission because we give you that decentralized edge app stack. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're setting up and managing servers. Perfect. Folks, that concludes this episode. Once again, that was Boris Mann from Fission. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.